everyone. This is WBEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Also streaming live at WBEW.org. This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. On the air every Sunday to noon, we are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can find us on Facebook and at Indigo Radio and at Instagram. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests, not the radio station. Um, so you're listening today. We have uh, Nina, Becca, and Marisa in the studio, and we've been doing a few radio shows on Venezuela recently. And this one, we'll talk a little bit more about Venezuela, but overall um, about food sovereignty and what that means, um, particularly within the capitalist system in which we live today. And I just want to check to see if this mic is working because it wasn't working last time. It is now. Okay. Um, great. And last week, if you did, if you missed Indigo Radio, um, we talked about housing in Brattleboro with Rihanna Kendrick at Groundworks Collaborative. So check out Instagram or our Facebook or our uh, podcast to find that, to listen to that show that you might've missed. And in particular, um, that show was a lead up to an event that's happening in Brattleboro on May 19th um, about short-term rentals in Brattleboro. Um, And we here at Indigo Radio are opposed to uh, the increase of short-term rentals in Brattleboro. Um, So please be on the lookout for other uh, events that will be leading up to that. Great. So today we are here some interviews from Christina... Schiavoni. Thank you. <laughs> Who's a food activist and scholar and Ricardo Vos, a writer and editor with Venezuela Analysis. So without much more, I think let's get started listening to Christina talk about food sovereignty. Food sovereignty is a concept that I think that sort of the general population, if you said it, like they, they wouldn't quite understand what it means. So I wonder if you could kind of give a a definition and an idea of um, what that means and what it is. Sure, gladly. Well, let me first start with the definition that I follow because it's what food sovereignty movements came up with themselves uh, back in 2007 at the first global forum for food sovereignty that took place in Mali. And what they say is that food sovereignty is the right of people to healthy and culturally appropriate food produced through ecologically sound and sustainable methods and their right to define their own food and agriculture systems. And I want to really emphasize that second part of the definition, their right to define their food and agriculture systems because food sovereignty is very much about trying to shift the power in the food system and put power back from the multinational corporations and the international financial institutions, et cetera, back into the hands of those who actually grow and harvest and produce the food and those of us who eat as well. Um, so really putting the power from the, in the food system out of uh, corporate hands and back into the hands of the people, essentially. And another important part of food sovereignty um, there are sort of six basic principles that social movements have also come up with. And uh, I like them because they're, they're simple and yet they really capture a lot. And one is that food sovereignty focuses on food for people. So instead of treating food as a commodity uh, simply to be traded around the globe and for money-making purposes and corporate consolidation, it's really about real food for real people. So uh, that also brings in questions of hunger and equity, food security. Uh, The second thing is that it values food providers, which is a huge problem in today's food system, is that actually the majority of hungry people in the world are themselves food providers, people living in rural areas, and that shows a huge problem with the food system. A third principle of food sovereignty is localizes food systems. And a fourth that's connected to the third is puts control locally. And a fifth is builds knowledge and skills. And the sixth one is works with nature. And that really gets into 
agroecology and the importance of changing our food systems, especially in light of climate change. So those are sort of the basic principles shaping food sovereignty and something really important to emphasize about food sovereignty is that this is a concept coming directly from the most impacted people in today's food systems. It's coming from the small-scale farmers, fisher people, farm workers, food workers, etc., um, who are most impacted by the problems of our global food system. Great. And um, you had mentioned uh, about sort of localizing the system. Um, and some people might argue that there are certain limitations to localizing food sovereignty. And in your opinion, could the state, does the state have a role or, or does it not? And what are your thoughts around that? Absolutely. And I, I think that most people who are promoting food sovereignty, although, of course, you know, people's uh, perspectives run the gamut, but almost everyone, I think, would agree that there's no getting around the state because the issues today are so big, um, the level of corporate consolidation in the food system, the level of power and control uh, shaping the global food system, shaping uh, what gets onto our plates, is so big that local action is important, it's critical, it does amazing things, but it's not enough. Another thing about local action is that you can create pockets of change doing really important things, but how do you ultimately get societal wide reach, right? How do you ultimately not just have a project that might benefit a certain community or even just certain members of the community, but benefit the people who are most affected by issues of food injustice, et cetera. So when we think about issues of scale and issues of societal reach, there's absolutely no getting around the state. And food sovereignty movements from the beginning have, some people have debated, is it about the local, is it about the national? What I've found when you actually talk to movements and see how they're navigating is that it's, it's not either or, it's both and. We absolutely need local level organizing. We need to actively be building alternatives. But we also need to dismantle the existing systems. And through local action alone, uh, you have limitations. So the state and trying to hold the state accountable and first trying to get power from some of the multinationals back into the national realm in order to then have more local control. It's all very connected. So um, some have argued for a multi-scalar approach to food sovereignty, and I think that many food sovereignty movements themselves would agree with that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I actually run a club with middle schoolers, a garden club after school, and oh, one of the cool. things that we look at over the winter when we can't grow food is who owns the companies, and even though there's like in a variety of quote-unquote choice in the supermarkets here, it's, we did the research and it's really only owned by about six companies, all of the I ideas of choice. So that makes a lot mm -hmm. of sense to me in terms of how do we dismantle the systems to make it so that the people who are growing the food benefit. Um, and I'm wondering if you could give us other examples of what food sovereignty looks like on the ground. Sure. Well, I think sometimes when we think of what food sovereignty looks like on the ground, we might think about the visions that are um, the alternatives that are envisioned. For instance, we might think of um, thriving local food economies and farmers markets and healthy farms and agroecology, and that all is part of food sovereignty. But in terms of what does food sovereignty look like, to me, food sovereignty is a process. So food sovereignty looks like organizing. Food sovereignty looks like coming together to start asking questions about where's our food coming from and who controls it. Um, where's the power in, in our food system? Um, who's benefiting? Who's not benefiting? Who's going hungry and why? And then um, really looking at where the power is and trying to create change, trying to push for new policies. Um, often it's very contested uh, processes and 
and as I said before, I think food sovereignty is both about the building, about creating these vibrant new alternatives, and about dismantling, about changing the power structures that exist in the food system. So when I just to say what does food sovereignty look like, to me, that's what it looks like. It's, it's about organizing. It's about struggle in order to reach this vision of a transformed food system that, that is the ultimate vision. But it's very much a process, and the process can look messy, um, and the process can be very hard. There are movements around the world that uh, are laying down their lives in some cases in the struggle for food sovereignty. Um, so it's just to say it's, it's not an easy process, and uh, it involves a lot of struggle and, and a lot of hard work and a lot of organizing. Absolutely. And there are many inspiring movements that we can look to for guidance, and um, I'm wondering if you could talk about some of those. Sure. Well, I can start with uh, maybe some of the ones that listeners might have heard of. One is a very powerful social movement called the MST, the Landless Workers Movement in Brazil. And they have occupied, I'm sorry I don't have the numbers on me, but hundreds of thousands of hectares of, of land that was lying fallow, fallow and not being used productively. And they have reclaimed that uh, for communities, for landless workers to be able to settle on this land create settlements, create farms, agroecological farms, create schools, create microenterprises, really vibrant things on, on these settlements that have been created. And the MST has been a very active member in the global movement for food sovereignty um, led by the peasant movement La Via Campesina, it's called. And La Via Campesina has members all over the world um, on, you know, throughout Africa, throughout Asia, Latin America, um, North America and Europe as well, who have come together to really try to push for food sovereignty at a global level and sort of connecting local actions and global change. Um, there are movements in Mexico that are demanding uh, that traditional corn be preserved because Mexico is the center of origin of corn and so genetically modified corn coming into the country is not only threatening the food supply in Mexico but it's threatening uh, the global supply of corn because we need to preserve the um, genetic diversity that our crops depend on especially in the face of climate change. Um, there are vibrant peasant movements uh, in many parts of Africa, I've visited them in Tanzania and in Mozambique and in Mali that are fighting against uh, what's called land grabbing, where it's these large-scale investments. They come and, and they say, oh, this land isn't being used. It's underproductive land, when in fact uh, there are people grazing their animals. There are people raising crops. There are people collecting medicinal herbs, uh, people using the land for all different purposes, but they're invisibilized. So these movements are trying to bring visibility back to these communities and, and say, hey, this is, this is land that has been passed down over generations. Um, and so fighting back against this corporate land grabbing. Um, there are fisher movements in many parts of the world as well, um, including in Asia, that are doing a lot of work against uh, large-scale sort of corporate industrial fishing because what's happening to farming has also happened to the fishing sector as well, where it's this sort of idea of get big or get out. Mm -hmm. um, and so pushing back against that. Um, so there are many examples, including right in the U.S. There are so many examples. I had the um, honor of helping to found the U.S. Food Sovereignty Alliance, which are um, groups from all over the U.S. who are coming together and trying to uh, push for, for change. It includes farm worker groups and fisher groups, urban food justice groups. Um, so there are many inspiring examples. And um, in the 
U.S. state of Maine alone, there I believe there are over 40 food sov- local food sovereignty ordinances. Yes, 47 local food sovereignty ordinances just in the state of Maine alone. Um, so both in the global north and global south, there are many examples of food sovereignty. Thank you so much. I'm wondering, um, this idea that you talked about with the corporate land grabs, thinking that land's underproductive, mm-hmm. there's a dominant narrative here in the U.S. that uh, GMOs are good or that like big corporate farms are good because they help feed everyone, especially feeding people in cities where they can't grow food. And I'm wondering if you could respond to that in terms of food sovereignty. Sure. And I'll respond in first to say the only reason that narrative exists and continues to exist is because there's so much power and so much money behind it. Because a fundamental fact that is well-documented, well-known, is that there is plenty of food right now in the world to more than feed every person on this planet. And so these narratives come from this idea of scarcity, that there's not enough, um, that, that we have to produce more. So the starting point is, yes, according to uh, the United Nations, uh, according to much, much, much documented evidence, there is enough food in the world already, but it's not being distributed fairly. And the people who are growing the food are often the most marginalized and not being paid fairly, and then they can't access basic goods either. So it's a fundamentally broken and unjust food system. And so these proposals coming from Monsanto and other large corporations and coming from some of the sort of larger institutes, the World Bank, et cetera, that are promoting them, it's this idea that let's produce even more. So we have a broken food system that's already producing enough food, and then we produce more food through a broken food system that continues to not get distributed properly and that continues to exploit the very people who are growing it, then we're just doing more of the same. And that's precisely what we have been doing. And that's precisely why despite all of the technological advancements we've had over the past decades, where we indeed are growing more food, and yet hunger continues to persist. So clearly, we're doing something wrong. And clearly, producing more food when we already have enough to feed people and people aren't being fed is not the answer. So I, I, I think that that's actually where the idea of food sovereignty came from. Because every number of years, there would be a World Food Summit, some big dialogue in Rome or some other large city where uh, global powers would come together and sort of talk about this conundrum of hunger. And the people actually producing the food said, hey, why aren't we there at these meetings? Because, Because the powers that be do not have it in their interest to change the food system. And that is why hunger persists. And part of what helps hunger persist are these narratives about feeding the world, which really are very much more about um, feeding corporate greed, not people's needs. Welcome back. This is Indigo Radio. You're listening to 107.7. Uh, That was an interview with Christina Schiovanni, who's a food activist and scholar, and she was just talking a little bit. um, I think that last line that she just ended on was very powerful, that we can't be um, living under a system that is about making a profit and expect that we can, um, that everyone can have access to healthy and affordable food. Those two things contradict one another. Which means that we have to work towards changing that system that... Yeah. Okay, so we're going to go to a song break. Um, we're going to play this song by a French artist, French rapper called Colibri. Um, and his song, it's I believe the English version, is called Monsanto.
My story began in 1901 in the US of A, yes, in Missouri State. I'm now the world's number one in chemical and agricultural industry. I'm everywhere in the fields, industry, cash and money, my only plans. Accused huh? of having bloody hands, of being responsible for the biodiversity fall, of poisoning from fields to plates, and of tracking down the farmers who plant what I patent. Bad, bad reputation, many accusations. Why? You should admire my success for mine's the best example of a successful business. Yes, of a successful business. My special support to the government, of course. Between us, no border, but now it's revolving doors. Yes, that's my reality. Forget the finality and the brutality of my policy. Agent Orange Posse, like Rundup, GMOs and PCPs. Forget them, please. Forget the people stranded dead and all the disasters that I let. I want my success to grow taller. The world of my dreams I'm ready to go further and further I ignore the human screens And I'm always ready to play The murderer I am an American corporation I sow hatred And I read suicides I am the GMOs I am the pesticides I have become the king Of the deathly patents And I'm drinking your blood It gives me all the strength To impose my empire With power and fire Responsible for the self-killing Of thousands of places We became completely you're listening to Indigo Radio at WVWLP Brattleboro. Our show today is about food sovereignty. We're talking with Christina Schiovani, who is a, um, a food activist and scholar. So we'll go back to her interview. And um, yesterday I, I did a big presentation um, on accumulation by dispossession in my um, political economy mm -hmm. class. And um, we talked a lot about land grabbing and how people are dispossessed. And I think you mentioned earlier, it, it's, it's a very food providers are the ones that are going hungry and, and most likely being dispossessed through this land grabbing. And it's this system that that w continues to dispossess and, and also to co the commodification of food. Um, where you have yeah. to go and buy the food as opposed to, to growing the food. And I just wonder, just sort of thinking about capitalism, in your thoughts, like what kind of labor or, or maybe social relations are necessary for food sovereignty to exist? Like what kind of a process do you think to get to that point where sure. um, food, food sovereignty can exist? Well, ultimately the vision of food sovereignty because I actually something I should have maybe made clear in the beginning I like to kind of specify there's food sovereignty as in the vision and then there's the process of constructing food sovereignty so I think the vision of food sovereignty that people are working for involves a wholesale transformation of the food system of how we relate to each other it definitely has an anti-capitalist bent um, that we, we need systems outside of capitalism. It also has um, an anti-racist and an anti-patriarchal bent, saying that we also need to dismantle racism, we have to dismantle patriarchy. All these systems of oppression that are interconnected and that are very much a part of how our food system works today, where our food system is very much built off of exploitation especially exploitation of people in the global south, community of co communities of color, of women, of um, all sorts of marginal groups are just further marginalized by the food system for the profit of the few. Um, so food sovereignty involves transforming this, and it involves looking at more cooperative systems, more collective systems, community-controlled systems, um, systems of commons where land and water and other basic resources don't belong to any single person or any single corporation, but are something that belongs to the people, where there might be a role for the state to manage and facilitate that, but ultimately it's for the benefit of society. So um, food sovereignty really does involve quite a transformative vision, and at the same time, it's not some pie-in-the-sky utopia thing, because as I said, it's something that people are already actively working on around the world, and one of the ways they're doing it is what some would call prefigurative politics, 
kind of like, you know, let's make the world that we want to see. Let's try to make it in the here and now, and let's create some real models that show that other ways are possible. So again, that connection between the local scale and the larger scale, even though we do need large-scale change, it is important to have action at the local level to be able to show that this change is possible and to be able to show that there are other models that work and then working to scale them not just upward but also outward in a horizontal way. And there's a lot of ways that there are already that's already happening. There are farmer-to-farmer -farmer networks that are spreading not only across countries but across entire regions. Um, there are all sorts of alternative food systems that are already in, in functioning, both at the grassroots level, and then there are also examples of effective positive policies um, at all different levels as well. So just to say it is this bold, broad vision, but it's also a vision that has very actionable steps of, of getting towards it. Thank you. Um, I, that's really helpful to think about it in terms of the vision and the process. I know that you've spent a lot of time learning about Venezuela and what's happening there in terms of the Bolivarian Revolution, and I was wondering if you could talk about that in terms of the process of implementing the vision of food sovereignty. I'd be happy to, yeah. I first went to Venezuela for my work. I was working for an NGO based in the U.S., working, uh, trying to promote food sovereignty. And I went to Caracas for the World Social Forum in 2006. And what impressed me, and what I hadn't really read anywhere, is that people were already actively working towards food sovereignty in many ways at the grassroots level. And these efforts were being supported by national policy, where there was an article in the Constitution that really laid the framework for food sovereignty to be food sovereignty to be supported through policy. And that was just so exciting. And it kind of got me thinking like, well, why hadn't I heard this before? Why aren't we talking about this? And it just seemed to me like back then, food sovereignty was largely this vision, this rallying cry, uh, this response to the problems of the food system. But here was a country at the national level working to try to implement it. And even though it was a highly imperfect process and it was messy and some things were working and some things weren't, it just seemed really important to look at this and to learn from it, especially as many of us want to work towards food sovereignty in our respective communities and countries. So that got me sort of following what was happening in Venezuela. Um, and eventually that's what inspired me to go to grad school and to make that the focus of my research so that I could really focus in on what was happening there. Um, and it was fascinating to see all different new systems uh, being attempted. It, I, I called it this big food sovereignty experiment because that's what I considered it to be. So it was very interesting, for instance, to see uh, large-scale trawling ships that uh, many fishing movements have been fighting against. They were actually banned in Venezuela, while at the same time, small-scale fisheries were supported. There was a process of land reform. So just like what the MST was doing in Brazil, but doing that sort of partly against the state or in a sort of contested process, in Venezuela, it was actually being promoted by the state. And farmers, in many cases, were being supported to reclaim land and form cooperatives. Um, there was also a huge anti-hunger effort because Venezuela is a very urbanized country and it imports the vast majority of its food because um, since the 1920s it's been exploiting its petroleum reserves and uh, it was deemed more economical to import food rather than grow it. So the food system, agriculture, was essentially abandoned in the country and people flooded into the cities but there wasn't sufficient infrastructure, there weren't sufficient jobs, so there was a lot of urban poverty. So then there were all these anti-hunger programs to try to help address the needs of people in the cities. So for quite a few years, I, I followed this, I documented this, and then, of course, over the course of my research, things got much more complex 
because I started to see the food system essentially unraveled before my eyes. And I started to see certain key products that are really critical to Venezuelan families suddenly missing from the supermarket shelves. So it, it made my research a lot more interesting because I was there kind of in the thick of it from 2016 through 2018, and I was living in a working-class community where families were directly grappling with, you know, what do we do? Um, there are several things that are not mentioned in the media, and one is that it's not overall scarcity of food. It's that certain key industrial food products are missing. For instance, this pre-cooked corn flour that's really critical to the Venezuelan diet. Um, and so that's one thing. And the other thing that's not discussed is who controls these products. These products, such as pre-cooked corn flour, are actually controlled by a food monopoly that is the country's largest corporation called Polar. So there's a lot of politics behind the food shortages that are not talked about at all because there's sort of a whole other narrative being presented about, oh, you know, the failures of socialism and the failures of the government policy, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one thing. The other thing that's not talked about is all the responses because there had been all this groundwork laid for food sovereignty. And so people have really been activating and reactivating all of these alternative food networks, all of these different ways of distributing food in the communities, of growing food. And actually, a lot of the food sovereignty efforts of the past are what are helping to sustain communities today when they cannot get the products they need in the supermarket, but instead they're coordinating with farmers to be able to get other products and working on urban agriculture and doing other alternatives. So that's kind of a very dynamic situation, and just to try to, like, there's a lot going on, but to try to put it succinctly, that's some of what I've been looking at in Venezuela today. That's great. And um, we've been talking about Venezuela on our show in the past couple of weeks, and so that just adds to the understanding of how do we change the narrative in the U.S. and actually look at Venezuela as a inspiration and something that we can learn from rather than as a failure. Well, one thing I would just add to that is what I was talking to before about that idea of both building and dismantling as being essential to food sovereignty. That sort of observation came directly from what I saw in Venezuela, where I saw that during the better times, you know, before 2013, when I saw all these new alternatives being launched that were really inspiring and great, what I realized, however, is that the predominant food system, and for instance, the control of this single food monopoly, that was not really touched. So that just kind of led me to um, emphasize more that I think when we talk about building food sovereignty, we cannot just talk about building alternatives, but we have to talk about dismantling the system that currently exists. And if I were to say one of the weaknesses or one of the reasons that I think Venezuela finds itself in the position that it is today is that there was a lot of alternative building, but not as much dismantling of, of the older structures that today are, are essentially being reactivated where food is able to be used as a political weapon. And that is the exact sort of polar opposite of what food sovereignty is about, and it shows why food sovereignty is so very important. Great. Um, is, there, is, there, is, there, is there anything else that you'd like to leave um, the listeners with? Um, I would just leave the listeners with uh, this idea that we are all part of this. Food sovereignty isn't just something that you have to be a landless peasant in Brazil or um, somewhere in Venezuela or in um, Tanzania fighting land grabs. All of us, all of us are engaged, live in a community somewhere, live in a place. We are all connected to the global food system. We are all um, victims in certain ways, benefiting in other ways. Um, the sense of looking at, at our power and looking at... 
Welcome back. Uh, this is WVEWLP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. You've been listening to Indigo Radio on the air every Sunday from noon to one. Uh, we've just been hearing an interview with Christina Schiavani. She's been talking about food sovereignty and uh, just now has been speaking about food sovereignty in Venezuela. Um, she's talking about how uh, we really need to transform our relations of production in order to have uh, whole scale food sovereignty. Um, so we're going to take a break now and go to a song. Uh, this is Manu Chao, Seeds of Freedom. Seeds of freedom, time has come. Seeds of freedom, life will overcome. Seeds of freedom, all we need is some. Seeds of freedom, life will overcome. Small seed, big tree, gardens of hope. Everywhere, just to share, gardens of hope. This is Indigo Radio on WVEW LP Brattleboro. So, sorry for the song mix-up. It um, started playing another song on a different program. So we're back, and I hope you enjoyed Manu Chao's Seeds of Freedom. We're going next to an interview by Ricardo Voss, uh, who is a writer and editor of Venezuela Analysis, and he's going to be talking to us more about uh, projects of food sovereignty, and I think it's important as we keep in mind um, as we listen to keep in mind one of the last things that Christina said that we're not just building alternatives but we also need to dismantle the system and I think that's where the Bolivarian revolution um, is leading and why so many of the oligarchs and the U.S. is against the Bolivarian revolution. So let's go to the interview. Us on the phone, he's a writer and editor at VenezuelaAnalysis.com. Thank you so much for joining us on Indigo Radio. Thanks for having me. Could you start out by talking about um, your idea or vision of what food sovereignty is? Okay, so for me, thinking about food sovereignty is having control on the entire production chain of, of food. So all the way from you know, owning the seeds to owning the land to then controlling how food is distributed so that everyone can have access to it. And so you're in Venezuela now, and I think Venezuela is a great place to look at in terms of a vision for food, food sovereignty. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about some of the initiatives on the ground that are happening right now to build food sovereignty. Yeah, I mean, Venezuela is definitely a very interesting case study for this. So before, let me just give some kind of, of background. So Venezuela used to be a, a large uh, agricultural producer, let's say up to the to the early 20th century. I mean, it was a producer of staples like corn or coffee. And, and then we had the, the discovery of oil. So first of all, it's important to understand that, you know, even though it was a, a major food producer, 
the the way the, the land was organized was in what we call uh, latifundio. I'm not sure there's a, a proper English word for this, but latifundios are understood as these very large estates that are for the most part unproductive. So even though there was food production, it wasn't in any way directed towards um, addressing the needs of the population. So then these large estates, very quickly be it became more profitable to, to exploit oil than to continue producing food. So Venezuela became very quickly a production on, on oil. And the consequence of this was that, you know, whatever agricultural production was left was very uh, underdeveloped. And then when there were attempts to, to kind of industrialize in the, in the agro-industrial sector, you know, for example, to produce corn flour, this wasn't uh, connected to the agricultural production in, in the country. So what do I mean by this? Because there was this uh, very um, huge oil rent, it was much more profitable for these industrialists who were, you know, one step away from the oil rent. I mean, you know, between the, the very powerful families and the government, there was a very large overlap. It was more uh, profitable for them to just import food than to articulate with whatever production exists in the country. So in that sense, you had, the, you know, in the natural development of capitalism and the creation of monopolies, the monopolies in Venezuela are at the level of distribution and not at the level of production. So you had a handful of, of companies that control the distribution of the main food staples. I mean, chief among them, maybe people are familiar with the name, is Grupo Polar. Grupo Polar is the, the main producer of things like uh, uh, corn flour, beer, margarine, uh, mayonnaise, and all, all these, all these uh, staples of, of the Venezuelan diet. Okay, so then this is the kind of very imbalanced uh, structure that is inherited by the Bolivarian Revolution when Chavez comes to power in, in 1999. And then, you know, within the, the vision of the Bolivarian Revolution that also evolves through time, it's not something that was set in stone from the start, there is an idea of sovereignty in, in many senses, which of course includes food sovereignty. So there was uh, an, an effort to, to increase agricultural production in the country, but it never got very far off the ground. Uh, the Bolivarian Revolution is, a, is very much a, an experience that provides a lot, a lot of empowerment to grassroots groups. And so these groups start mobilizing um, to, to build food sovereignty themselves. So I could maybe talk about uh, three different experiences that try to address this issue in, in different ways. So one of them is at the level of seeds. So in 2015, there was the approval of a new seed law. And this I encourage people to, to look it up. It's, it's available. Uh, I mean, there's lots of discussion on it also in venezuelanalysis.com. And this is a, you know, a very advanced seed law, perhaps the, the latest example of uh, you know, an important piece of legislation that is entirely or almost entirely driven by grassroots organizations. And so this is meant not just to, to prohibit um, the use of uh, genetically modified seeds, but also to recover the, the native seeds in Venezuela. And so there are lots of efforts uh, which are also a result of the crisis. You know, one example that I know very well has to do with, the, with potato production. So in the Venezuelan Andes, Andes in, in the West, uh, there, was, there used to be a lot of uh, production of potato and also other uh, staples from from the from on, on the mountainside, and the potatoes uh, gradually, you know, the, the native variety started to be replaced by an imported variety from Canada, which had the advantage that it yielded a, a harvest in six months as opposed to the eight months of the of the native uh, variety. But then, of course, you know, with the with the crisis in Venezuela, at, at some point there's no money to to import seeds, and this forced uh, campesinos, uh, peasants, to, to start rescuing these seeds. So on, on one hand, you have this effort that comes from, you know, the, the own collective organization of, of the campesinos, but at the same time, there's research being done in, in laboratories to, to improve these native seeds, to distribute them, to multiply them, and, and also to, to, to have it known to, to campesinos that this exists and, you know, and how it works. So that, that's one example that, that's very interesting. People can, can, can look it up. I wrote an article about this on you know, rescuing food sovereignty in the Venezuelan Andes, and, and they can find out more. Okay, wonderful. Uh, a second example that I would bring up is uh, you know, with one of the, the major expressions of popular organization are communes. 
So communes were seen as as the you know the basic ingredients for the construction of socialism. So communes are, let's say, the the self-government in the territory. And so communes in the in the in the countryside, they own land and they produce food with a perspective that's not uh, the capitalist one, right? So food is not produced to to be sold for the maximum profit, but it's produced to address the the needs of the people, not just in the commune, but also outside. So one of the most uh, well-known examples is El Maisal. El Maisal is a commune in more or less in the center of the country that has advanced very much, not just in terms of production, but also politically. And what's interesting about El Maisal is that they really have this, this perspective that uh, land and the means of production are meant to satisfy human needs and they are very inflexible about it. And what I mean by this is that around the commune there were these uh, these plots and these units that were actually, they actually belonged to the state, but they were idle, they were not producing. And so the commune simply took them, took them over and, and started producing. So not, they, they've taken over uh, private land that was idle, but they've also had no qualms in, in taking over uh, means of production belonging to the state that were not uh, being given the proper use. And so that, that's also a very interesting uh, advance towards food sovereignty at the level of what we, in jargon we could call uh, ownership of, of the means of production. And then finally, uh, you know, actually going back to, to what I was saying in the beginning, this replacement of agricultural production by, uh, by oil also has a consequence that, that you can kind of infer, which is it, it generates a lot of unemployment in the countryside, which is reflected by a huge migration towards the cities. So the major uh, Venezuelan cities, uh, Caracas, Valencia, Maracay, and so on, have these uh, barrios, these shanty towns, which is where this huge displaced uh, rural population ended up. And so what you end up is with a huge urban population that needs to be fed and you know, at the time of uh, when the crisis started to really be felt, this is around uh, late 2015, early 2016, where you really start to see shortages because, simply put, the money that was destined for imports was really slashed, and so you know there was no food on on shelves, there was no food on market. You start to see these um, these community organizations in 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 cities, in, in the urban centers also try to, to address the problem directly. So the issue is that uh, whatever food production exists in the countryside, it then goes through a chain of intermediaries because, as I was saying, the monopolies are at the level of distribution, not production, and that results in, in very inflated prices uh, you know, on the consumer end. And so there were different uh, organizations that started to articulate or to coordinate directly with, with the campesinos. So this initiative that, um, that I have in mind is called Pueblo a Pueblo, so people to people, in the sense of connecting the people in the countryside to the people in the urban centers. And so you have uh, organizations of campesinos in the countryside that produce a host of things, and then these are sent at fair prices to, to urban communities. And only here in, in Caracas there are, uh, you know, maybe five or six different uh, networks of Pueblo, Pueblo Pueblo, which work in different ways, but they are, they are all under this, uh, this umbrella and, and this concept. So one, for example, is here in one of the, the poorest neighbors in, neighborhoods in Caracas, which is San Agustin, it's a very large uh, Afro-descendant neighborhood, and they have this, this very, very beautiful uh, initiative that I had the chance to, to visit, and so Every, every two weeks, a truck from the countryside carrying uh, you know, all sorts of fruit and vegetables uh, arrives, and then it, there's a, an entire day's work, an entire day of, of collective work, where this food is, uh, is unloaded, it's separated into equal pieces, and then it's sold at prices which are on average, let's say, 60 to 70 percent cheaper than what you'll find on a, on a regular market or supermarket here in town. And so then, uh, you know, going one step further, these um, popular organizations of, of communities uh, around addressing what is one of their, their main concerns, which is access to food, has allowed to, to, to repoliticize people. So to, to really sow the idea once more 
that collective organization is the way forward, right? That you know we're not going to solve the whatever issues we have uh, on our own. Uh, communities are trying to organize and, and to secure food sovereignty. Yeah. I do have one question based on what you're saying, that there's these, there's these initiatives kind of popping up all over Venezuela, and we could say all over the world, with popular organization towards food sovereignty. And I'm wondering, what, what do you think would need to happen in order for this to happen on a larger scale, like a Venezuela as a whole, or um, in other places where we see this happening? And what are the barriers towards food sovereignty that you see existing? Uh, actually, yeah, that's a very interesting question. So let me start by the end. Um, so the barriers, first of all, uh, or at least at the, at, the late, at the higher level, would be, uh, you know, legislation. You know, simply the fact that, uh, you know, legislation allows for companies like Monsanto to simply flood the market with the genetically modified seeds is a huge obstacle because uh, you know, genetically modified seed. Even even discounting the issue, the you know the possible health concerns, there are many others, right? I mean, you you'll never be, build food sovereignty around those because they are not reproduced. They they have patents, and so that around that there's there's no way. Other than that, um, I would say that you know capitalism as a system itself, because of its uh, priority towards profit. Is, is an obstacle. So these these ex these experiences, not just in Venezuela but around the world, they can emerge in in capitalist settings simply because you know it, it's a it's a it's a logical argument that if you have a production chain and it has a lot of intermediaries, if you get rid of the intermediaries, you can get uh, if you get rid of the middleman, you can have a cheaper price at the end. So that's a simple economic argument. But you know at the end, if you want to go to a larger scale, as you were asking, you need to start questioning the the very dynamics of, of capitalism. Welcome back. This is Indigo Radio. You've just been listening to Ricardo Voss, who's talking about uh, food sovereignty in Venezuela. And for the last segment of our show today, we'd like to talk about Palestine. Yesterday, March 30th, Palestinians marked the 43rd anniversary of Land Day. This was a, a day commemorating... Um, when the Israeli troops took over, uh, pal like came after a Palestinian march, um, and six young Palestinians were killed. And this, I'm sorry, this was not about a march. This was about a day that Israel confiscated 5,000 acres of land, and the Israeli police responded, violently killing six Palestinians. So, in uh, 1948, more than 700,000 Palestinians were expelled from their homes, and since then, more than 5 to 8 million Palestinians became refugees and remain refugees until this day. Last year, in 2018, was the year with the highest numbers of deaths by Israel against Palestinians since the 2014 attack on Gaza, with over 295 murdered and nearly 3,000 injured. I talked to a friend in Gaza yesterday who said there are so many people without limbs now after this last year of Israeli attacks. And now we know that Israel is dropping bombs once again on Gaza. And I think a connection um, to what we were just listening to with food sovereignty today that uh, both of our interviewees talked about is um, ownership at the means of production, not distribution. Um, the false rhetoric from the World Bank and the IMF that there's a scarcity of food, that, that perhaps it's people's fault that they're living in poverty. Um, all of that relates to Palestine um, and Palestinians whose land what has, Israel has been trying to take over the land and control the production of land. And so the resistance um, includes control and ownership of land and resources and production um, uh, for their for their own um, lively living. Mm -hmm. And the majority of Palestinians were and are uh, farmers. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about food sovereignty in Palestine, we really have to think about the control over land and resources as the necessity to end occupation in order for Palestinians not to be hungry. And 
constantly Israel has tried to stop production of Palestinian farmers so that they could flood the markets with low-cost foods that are imported. And I think of um, this, you know, there's resistance all the time that has to do with food, whether the fishermen in Gaza or people going out and replanting olive trees that have been uprooted over and over and over again. And there's one particular instance of resistance that really stands out to me. It's from the first intifada where Palestinians in Beit Sahur decided we're going to have our own dairy production. It's going to be a small local dairy production. And they had 18 cows. And this became a national security threat to Israel. And so when you think about Palestinians producing their own milk as a national security threat, um, as like a way to resist the occupation that became so strong that all of their military forces were working in Beit Zahur to try to get these cows, that really shows how how important it is for people to control their own production. And, and I think, too, the importance of the commodification of food for the capitalist system. Um, without commodifying food, the owners of production would not have as much power. And so th that's, I think that's a very important point. And so in order for food not to be used as a political weapon anymore, we can look to the Palestinians who have been collecting collectively organizing and resisting and we'll end with a song by ambassador um oh, so b before mind. we move on to a song i just wanted to um we're going to be uh interviewing leah perlman in a few weeks and we'll be airing her interview in may with a continuation of our conversation around food sovereignty um she's the author of farming while black um she's a farmer and a middle school teacher science teacher uh in Troy, New York, and she farms just outside of Troy. So um, we'll, we will be continuing this conversation soon. And Nina, with your announcements, I think we just remembered a couple more we're supposed to make. We do. On May 4th, um, please join Indigo Radio and Brattleboro Solidarity, as well as the Spark Teacher Education Program in the afternoon from 1 to 4 um, to have another workshop. Um, and we'll be discussing... Um, land, labor, and housing in Brattleboro. Um, we'll be analyzing documents and maps together and, um, and also how we can resist. Um, this is connected to the short-term rental summit that's happening at the end of May that Brattleboro Solidarity opposes. Um, that afternoon, so we'll have the workshop at the Root Social Justice Center. Thank you very much, Root, for hosting us. And then that evening, um, we wanted to make you all aware of a talk that's happening at UMass Amherst, um, and I'm forgetting the name of the talk right now, <laughs> um, but it's connected to um, to the things that we've all been studying. So you can find that on our website, um, Indigo Radio, um, and also at the Spark Teacher Education uh, Facebook page as well. And lastly, on March 10th and 11th, we're going to be having the Spark Teacher Training Graduation and Education Conference, Stand Up, Fight Back. We hope that you can join us for any and all. And here is Ambassador Free Palestine. Hey, baby. You know we can't be together right now. We're miles and miles away. I want you to close your eyes.
free, free Palestine, 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 free, free Palestine. You might think carrying a weapon makes you tougher, but in Palestine, kids carry weapons to protect their mother. I don't mean guns or bombs, I mean stones. They throw them at tanks, but the tanks crush their bones. They shoot against unarmed people with guns and drop bombs on moms right in front of their sons. So why import Israeli products? I would deport them, killing the innocent. I will never support them. The Zionists and Jews are different types of people. The Jews ain't bad, but the Zionists are evil. Even the rabbis know the Zionists are crazy. We take life for granted, but they're killing newborn babies. Freedom won't be achieved until they feel the same pain. Palestinian shower tears pouring down like rain. Every word is a fact, not one was an opinion. When I say free Palestine, I'm talking for billions. Free Palestine and lay down your weapons. This is for the innocent souls that went to heaven. Cause what happened in America on 9-11 happens in Palestine 24-7. Free, free Palestine. 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 Free, free it's the idea that isn't all that new, that in a society which seems to be unable or unwilling to provide meaningful